just uh, self-censor yourself as as you go. Got it. No, no F-bombs. Got it. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't had an F-bomb on, on the podcast yet. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not opposed to it, actually, but... Uh, D- define F-bomb. Are we talking about FTX or a different kind of F-bomb? Howdy, folks. Welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today on the pod, we've got a panel for our year in review. I'm joined by Brian Ventura, Stephen McCaskill, and Paul Quickenden. Now, they've all been on the show before, so you can find links to their shows and bios in the description. Our year in review starts with the obvious, the SBF and FTX debacle that is still unwinding. Then we discuss the fallout from all the links that led to FTX's collapse. 2022 has been a record year for hacks as well. Most of them have been bridging hacks, and we discuss what's going on with security and the perception of crypto in the broader community. We finish with our picks for the winners and losers in 2022 and trends for 2023. First, a quick word about our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. So welcome everyone to our year in review. It's December. These things are going to start coming in fast and furious. Everyone's going to be putting out the reports and uh, your inboxes are going to be full of what's been happening. So I wanted to bring some of us together today um, to just basically have a chat about some of the things that have been happening in the crypto space and uh, how we feel about them and where we think things might go looking forward heading into 2023. So to get started, let's go with the hottest topic that uh, we've had in crypto for a long time. And 2022 has been filled with a lot of good topics. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and and FTX. Uh, A week ago, he appeared at the New York Times Dealbook Summit. He was interviewed by Andrew Sorkin. And uh, leading leading into this, the New York Times had put out a few very light articles on SBF. And by light, we mean that they hadn't, you know, attacked him of anything. They didn't even mention fraud. I think in out of two articles, they didn't mention it once. And so leading into this, which was hosted and sponsored by the New York Times, people were saying that uh, it wasn't going to be worth it. But I think Sorkin really, really came through and asked him some tough questions. Of course, Twitter responded in the in the follow up. Now, the very next morning, he was on Good Morning America with George Stephanopoulos and that video is on Twitter. So I'm going to play a short clip of that video. A lot of people look at you and see Bernie Madoff. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's who I am at, at all, but I understand why they're saying that. People lost money. But in the early morning hours of November 11th, it all came to an end when FTX filed for bankruptcy and Bankman Fried stepped down as CEO amid reports of FTX customer funds being used to pay Alameda Research creditors. This confirmed by former Alameda CEO Carolyn Ellison during an early November video meeting with employees. 
Alameda, the crypto trading firm also founded by Bankman Freed. ABC News reached out to Carolyn Ellison for comment, but has not heard back. One of the reasons FTX went bankrupt is because FTX deposits yep. were used to pay Alameda's creditors. Carolyn Ellison said you knew about that. Is that true? You know, best I can tell, uh, Alameda did have a big position open on, on FTX. Um, that position, uh, I think, was, you know, very over collateralized uh, a year ago. There is a, a total market collapse and, you know, specifically a large correlated collapse in its assets, you know, over the last month and to some extent over the last year that, uh, you know, threatened that position quite a bit. And I think that's, you know, as best I can understand, a lot of what happened there. I, I am no cryptocurrency expert. I'm no finance expert. Yep. But I don't think you answered my question. I always ask, yep. did you know that FTX deposits were used to pay off Alameda creditors? Uh, I don't know of FTX deposits being used to pay off Alameda creditors. Okay, so I'll I'll stop it there. Uh, you know, an incredible awkward pause there. I mean, in, in my view, either you have no idea and you're like, George, I had no idea. Come on, th this is ridiculous. Or you sit there and you're like, oh, I'm in some hot water here. What do I say about this? Um, I'll just say one more point on this. In the Sorkin interview, he said that he said, I have a duty to explain what happened to people. But then throughout the whole thing, you know, it was, you know, 45 minutes or so. He didn't explain much of anything. He said a lot of, uh, I don't have that number. He said, I'm still figuring out the mechanics of how the money was transferred. He said, I made mistakes. He said, I didn't understand the risks. You know, it, it was excuses all the way down. So uh, I'll stop there. Let's go to uh, Paul first. What are your thoughts on FTX, SBF, uh, and this whole debacle? Uh, well, look, I, because I do a lot of public speaking, you know, I get asked this a lot and it seems to me that, uh, this is not really a crypto problem. This is a criminal problem. Uh, and, and, you know, re regulation and rules and all that sort of stuff were broken. It just, it just is what it is, uh, in that regard. And he was, he turned out not to be the white knight. He turned out to be a bad man. Um, the, you know, I, I think. Sadly, the the biggest loser here is the crypto retail public and, and a lot of institutional investors and, and their cascading customers. So I think that's the biggest problem here. Um, and it also just points to a few things for me, and I'll be interested in you know, other people's opinions, but transparency in these really opaque parts of the ecosystem needs to be, you know, addressed. Um, and the, the, the issues of leverage, right? That's, that's the two things that keep coming up the whole way through this whole debacle, which started with Terra Luna. So leverage, leverage is a killer. So that's my take. Uh, Brian, can you operate in financial services industry if you're running a black box and, you know, convincing people you've got this money machine? Yeah, uh, seconding Paul's comments. Um, in crypto land, if you're a a crypto exchange like FTX, uh, they usually operate outside of the traditional financial services regulation, um, such as, uh, and also the uh, securities laws like the Financial Markets Conduct Act, by keeping any 
crypto assets, which are financial products or in the US securities off their platform. And because there's no bespoke crypto regulation, they have minimal um, regulations um, outside of um, in the US, for example, the you know uh, FTX may be a broker dealer, for example. Um, uh, but how I understand FTX operated was they held uh, their customer funds as a custodian on bear trust, and uh, they they pretty much breached um, tr their trusty obligations um, by um, transferring that money off balance sheet to Alameda. Um, so that Alameda can then pay uh, their own uh, obligations, um, really misusing billions of dollars of of customer funds. So um, unfortunately, this has been a problem with crypto since Mount Gox and even earlier. Um, and there needs to be some some regulatory framework for uh, for custody and customer funds and and crypto assets. Do uh, but do you, do you think regulation would help this issue? I don't think it would would solve this issue. I mean, as Paul said, like uh, this seems like pretty obvious criminal activity. Yeah, the the risk there is, um, and these are my personal views. Uh, these don't um, represent Blockchain New Zealand's or anyone or anyone's views. Um, regulation is meant to um, disincentivize bad behavior. Um, because it's black and white, um, a person is either compliant or non-compliant with regulation. Um, whereas what SBF is trying to do here is he's trying to diminish the argument that he has committed um, any kind of uh, uh, knowledgeable fraud um, by pleading ignorance or negligence. Um, but if if uh, FTX were regulated, then um, he wouldn't be able to get away with that either. Um, and there could be criminal recourse even for, for negligence. Stephen, would you ever loan out customer funds when you explicitly tell them in your terms of service that you will never do that? Uh, definitely not. Um, the way we're set up, you know, customers would, would know immediately uh, is what they see in their account is the physical Bitcoin or, or crypto. But the, it's, it, it is a bit challenging. I mean, I, I definitely question what Brian is, is talking about on the regulatory side, because there are already laws in place where we know things like theft, murder, fraud are illegal and wrong. And uh, so, you know, if there are any laws that uh, SBF broke, those laws already exist. We don't need new regulations or laws to say, um, you know, what was done was wrong. And, you know, you look on the flip side, look at all the successful exchanges that ex have existed for the last five, six, seven, eight years and have not needed uh, excess regulation. And the, you know, for Binance to become the size it has, did it need, um, regulation to protect customer funds. Um, did, does Bitrex, Poloniex, Koibi, OKX, Gate, uh, a number of crypto exchanges that have been operating for, for five plus years. Um, no. 
do they need re regulations to take care of customer funds? Well, no, because most of them are already doing um, a pretty good job of, of that. Um, and so this is where it really comes down to good big business practice. Um, you, you know, Bitcoin and crypto is, is a bit challenging because it is global in nature. It's not any one jurisdiction. And so it has to compete on a global level. Businesses have to compete on a global level. And that's why it's a little bit ruthless in our industry and uh, why you have some of these that fly by night like FTX. But the ones that are around for, for many years, um, the longer they're, they're around, the, the more established they are, you know, the, the more resilient they become. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if uh, FTX US falls or lands any better than the FTX global entity. Uh, he, he said that as FTX US should be 100% solvent, but uh, I don't think anyone believes anything that he's saying these, these past few days. Um, so, so just picking up on what Stephen said, like I kind of agree. I, I, and if you look at the amount of licenses that FTX Group had, you know, they were regulated. It, it sounds almost like a supervision problem. You could almost argue that it was a regulatory failure in some respects because they had all these licenses. And, and as modus operandi was to go and buy small entities in various jurisdictions who had, you know, AFSLs and all sorts of things and get credibility doing it that way. So, so it says to me that, that you know, I agree there is regulation. Um, it's, there's possibly grounds for a little bit more and Stephen and I might disagree on that, but you know, certainly uh, an argument to be put forward that custodians and exchanges should be separated now. Uh, and I suspect that the call it will continue to get louder and louder. Um, but you know, the supervision of, of Sam and his little empire of 136 shell companies is the problem, <laughs> right? So, so yeah. Like I, I'm being a bit flippant, but it actually, you know, somewhere in there, an auditor should have been able to see it, it looking quite quickly and going, holy crap, there's something quite wrong here. Look, it, it's not just supervision, right? It's it's about like having some grown-ups in the room. This is one of my favorite expressions lately is like, where, where are the grown-ups and what, what have they been doing? Uh, you look around FTX, the Bahamian, I'm not sure how to say that, the Bahamas entity, and it didn't seem like anyone was over 30. And you think, well, maybe they could have benefited from some, some experience there. Brian? And, and yeah, to add to that as well, um, it's, it's quite interesting. SPF's parents are both um, law professors on corporate governance. And um, maybe, maybe he um, <laughs> could have talked about governance a bit more with his parents. Um, I mean, we, we are starting to see a trend where at least the centralized exchanges in the U.S. are transitioning to post-trade settlement so that funds uh, can be held by a third party and not the exchange. So, so uh, pretty much in the last couple of weeks, we've started to see a, a lot of the big exchanges making those transitions. And uh, that... that uh, didn't require any regulation to be implemented for this move. Uh, of course, it did require FTX to collapse, but really it shows that the industry is is open to evolving and responding to the needs of, of customers and consumers to 
uh, uh, protect them. And, you know, I, I don't really want to see this industry stop there. Um, you know, if the, the if say we say, okay, we, we have a certain set of regulations, this is what we need. That kind of puts it on paper at that point in time. And yet, you know, the world moves on. And so there may be better best practices that come around, but they're not going to be implemented because they're not written down on this uh, piece of paper that states all the regulations. And so I, I do think that there are a lot of, of innovations that can be improved upon and particularly around moving towards that non-custodial solution. And if we start creating very specific regulations for today um, and, and, and what's happening today, we may miss the bigger innovations and improvements tomorrow. And so, uh, you know, the industry is responding, the industry is in pain and will take years to recover from this. And I think the industry as a whole is, is doing a pretty good job of managing it and trying to move forward um, without being told that we have to make changes ourselves. You're definitely right about the industry being in pain. Paul, earlier you mentioned about UST. So here's kind of the run sheet. Now, UST wasn't officially uh, centralized finance, but uh, it was definitely in, in the gray area. But anyways, uh, so UST collapse started in and around May 7th. Uh, it took about a week for the bottom to really fall out of that one. End of June, June 27th, Three Arrows Capital, the hedge fund um, announced or filed for bankruptcy. They were all out of cash and very underwater. Voyager followed only uh, 10 days later on July 7th. Celsius, which is kind of in a separate category, a week later on July 14th. Uh, and then we had a few months to pick up these pieces before, uh, while Sam Bankman-Fried was running around building his empire and um, hobnobbing in DC until FTX filed for bankruptcy November 11th. Uh, and then BlockFi just a little over a week ago, November 28th has filed for bankruptcy as well. Um, so here's, here's the question you said, Stephen, uh, the industry is in a lot of pain. Is centralized crypto finance dead? Is it going to recover from this? Uh, look, I think there's question marks about how it's been done. I don't think the, the, the actual industry is dead, but you know, that, that, that list, which is, you know, gives you nightmares when you, when you go back through it is, is literally a cascading of leverage flowing through the industry. And my, my point about the opaqueness of this is, is that, that I, I don't even know if those guys knew how leveraged they were leveraged. Um, and and that's that's probably the weakest part of that system and look i don't think banking and other financial industries are perfect in this regard like if you if you look at what happened with the 2008 financial crisis that was a repackage and mortgages sold you know several times and that that's what caused that cascading um issue so so clearly it's a reoccurring problem um you know I also, and this is a guess, and Stephen and, and Brian, you might know more than me, but it, it sounds a, bit, a little bit like these businesses were 
kind of operating like lending businesses, like lending banks, but without all of the processes and catches and on all of this, stuff, you know, and risk controls and all of the stuff that we want to avoid um, too much of. But it sounds like they, they kind of didn't quite have all of the right stuff in place to know just how leveraged they were. That's a guess as well. So I, I don't know the answer to that, but it, it I think you're bang on about about the leverage. And uh, I think a lot of people in crypto have been running wild with this idea of leverage and sort of, uh, you know, like like a little kid being out past curfew or not having a curfew, going crazy with it. And as we've seen now after the fact, the web of everyone that was lending to everyone else, uh, you know, marking down these fake tokens that had no value and, and no liquidity, uh, it's come undone very, very fast. I mean, so, so the biggest, I, I don't think that this is a crypto related issue. When we start looking at centralized entities, we see there's a lot of failures. And so, sure, um, centralized crypto, not dead yet, but it's probably going to be on its way out faster than other things. Uh, you know, centralized social media, centralized cloud storage, um, centralized banking, all those things, you know, in theory are going to be dead, uh, you know, in the next 50, 100 years. And uh, so, so you know, they have the exact same problems. The only difference with FTX is that Crypto is not supported by the banking and uh, monetary monopoly. And so uh, if you look at the banks, the banks are leveraged out the ass that, you know, 92% of all your money in the bank is, is lent out to somebody else. And um, in, in places like New Zealand, it's mortgage on top of mortgage on top of mortgage. And so, uh, you know, everyone's leveraging their, their homes to, to buy, you know, it's, so it's, it's not necessarily a crypto thing or crypto finance thing. Uh, the biggest difference is FTX didn't get a bailout. Uh, but you can guarantee that one of these leveraged, over-leveraged banks, they're definitely going to get a bailout. And um, they have a, a robust support, you know, the banking systems, 100 uh, 150 years old. And so it's a lot more resilient. And so they are able to give each other overnight loans and um, provide some of that support. Whereas in the crypto industry, it's, it's less than 10 years old. So um, maybe in, you know, another decade, uh, the industry would be large enough to support some of these bigger collapses, or maybe not. Uh, maybe they just need to happen and it makes the, the industry more resilient. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's certainly not a crypto problem, uh, this, um, these moral hazards with centralization. And um, crypto just points them out. And it's certainly not going to stop or end with crypto. Brian, is there a lesson here to be uh, learned by the banks? I, I think, um, yeah. Uh, I, I agree with Paul's and uh, Stephen's comments. It seems like CFI has been dabbling with uh, fractional reserve um, business models, which um, uh, and they got caught out um, when the market turned and they were short on liquidity, um, unfortunately. And you know, Stephen's right. This is a 10, 
12-year-old industry that's still learning. Um, and I, I still see C5 playing a really important role for, um, for onboarding new, new people into the space um, as a fiat on-ramp, uh, maybe as a fiat off-ramp as well. Um, but I, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunities now now that the industry has seen some of the failings of CFI to, to really try and explore um, DeFi and decentralized networks and decentralized businesses. Um, and so this could be an opportunity. So you mentioned there about um, using CFI for onboarding of, of new people. And on, on that thread, we've seen this year kind of a record number of hacks. So these aren't collapses and, uh, you know, funds being misappropriated or lost. Um, we're approaching $3 billion in sort of notional value of hacks of tokens that have uh, been stolen. A lot of them through bridge hacks this year. Uh, the biggest one at Six hundred twenty-five million was a Ronin bridge hack um, involving the Axie Infinity game, uh, and you know all the way down the list. Even Binance had a bridge hack where people, uh, the hackers, were able to mint uh, Binance tokens. Um, so as opposed to stealing, they were able to print some on on their own. Uh, so when the public come in and look at this and they see someone like SBF and they see this list of $3 billion in hacks, uh, would a new person even bother getting into the space? How do you, how do you onboard new people? Let's go to Paul. Uh, look, I, I'm old enough to remember there were a lot of bank hacks when the whole online banking system came along. It's in my opinion, um, uh, uh, an unfortunate side effect of a of a, an industry that's still relatively new and growing. And you know, Stephen said before, you know, ten years, ten years old for the for the oldest, you know, of of, of the of the networks. So, um, so unfortunately, um, when I step back, I just see it's a function of of its its growth trajectory. Um, bridging does seem to be a weak part of of the of that DeFi ecosystem. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they, I'll be honest, they, they make me nervous, um, if I was to use one. So just the, my understanding around how they work. So <laughs> me, um, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, and, and unfortunately the way the industry has grown and sprouted, you know, lots of different blockchains and technologies, which is you know, a vital part of our growth and our trajectory because doing things the way we've always done it is not what we're about is it means that we do have chain proliferation um, and 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 users rightly expect for their assets to be able to free flow between those those chains and networks and ecosystems. And so like it's something that we have to solve. There's, you know, off the top of my head, two, two natural ways of doing it. One is a, a centralized exchange uh, which you know accepts multiple chains as inputs and allows you to bridge in and out. And then there's the these bridging, you know, DeFi bridges, which is you know of, of that list of major hacks. Most of those, in my from my recollection, were bridges. Um, so you know, I just think you know more work to be done in that regard, and and have a a robust concern for people's funds. Like no one sets sets out to do a bad job, in my opinion, but I'm not, not sure. You know, I'm not sure if we've quite thought through all of the implications when we launch any smart contracts and stuff like that. 
I like that. We don't set out to do a bad job. Very optimistic. <laughs> well, you'll see for Sam. <laughs> anyway. Stephen, uh, $3 billion in hacks this year. Is that on your, on your list of concerns? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, the, in some ways, I consider it more R&D, um, research and development, where basically somebody launched some software that had a vulnerability in it. Somebody found the vulnerability and um, managed to earn some money from it, and that vulnerability was closed. Interestingly, although there were a number of hacks, the impact to the market and market price was um, negligible. You, you know, the uh, price, of, price of what? So obviously things like the, the Ronin hack had an impact. I think Axie Infinity dropped 25% within a few hours, but uh, within a week, the, the price was back to where it was. And so uh, when we look at its impact on the market, did it stop adoption? Uh, did it stop the, the prices of these assets from, from dropping immediately? Um, maybe there was a knee-jerk reaction, but long-term it hasn't really impacted them. They are also new forms of software that people are interacting with. So that's, you know, it's, it's very much, you have to be technical to be interacting with some of this. If you have Bitcoin stored away in your vault somewhere um, and it's not on any smart contract, then, uh, you, you know, you're not going to be losing your Bitcoin unless somebody physically breaks into your home, uh, you know, something like that. And so for the average person, it obviously comes down to risk and you have to trust whether you trust a company with your money in the bank and trust that that money is going to be diluted through money printing uh, versus trust that you have complete control over it, that um, you have um, the private keys. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to that decision, it's, it's not really high risk. But if you start wanting to get yield, if you start wanting to get interest from your crypto, then that interest comes with risk. And there are different risk profiles based on, you know, how um, adventurous you want to be. And so if you want to put your money into a protocol that's been around for a few weeks, a few months, then it's certainly a risk. And uh, it would be crazy if you didn't think it was a risk. Brian, your uh, a new client comes to you and uh, wants to uh, bridge a large amount of their funds to a new chain. Do you advise against it? Uh, I don't advise against it, um, and I, I think um, you know, like during the ICO boom, I saw a lot of people, a lot of projects um, getting peer reviews of their smart contracts, um, getting um, smart contract audits. And I'm not sure if that was the case for a lot of these bridges. Um, if it wasn't, maybe that's a new industry that can develop out of this. Um, and you know, maybe that's some good industry practice that we can that we can um, get out of this and establish um, together. 
Yeah, you know, this idea, Stephen rephrased it as R&D. And this idea of doing some hot development or development in production is, is very attractive if you want to get something into market, see if it works, um, not see if it works, but see if it can gain adoption and see if customers want to pick it up. On the other hand, when you're dealing with money and you have financial incentives through these tokens the whole way, I think you are bound to have some uh, some hiccups. I'm uh, I'm also not terribly concerned about the number. I did some back of the napkin math, and the last three years running, the amount of hacks in crypto as a percentage of market cap has been around 0.3% of the total value of the total crypto market. And it's been holding or tracking that low, like I said, for three or four years. If we go back to 2014, the Mt. Gox hack represented about 15% of the entire crypto market. And, you know, that was uh, much more devastating overall. So I think being hopeful that we'll bounce from this fairly quickly. Let's talk about some winners and losers for the year. So I tasked you with some homework to go away and uh, pick either someone or something or some group that you think has won and lost this year. So let's uh, let's do, we'll do losers and then we'll do winners. And let's go back to, let's, let's start back with Brian. Do you have a winner? Sorry, we're starting with losers. Let's go back to Brian. Do you have a loser for this year? Um. Uh, I, have, I have to pick Do Kwon just because look, I, I don't blame I don't blame the Luna Foundation for experimenting with algo um, stable coins um, but he, he did yeah the crash big crash did kind of start this beer market um, and I was my portfolio was sitting pretty right before that um, that crash and um, now it's uh, it's it's less so Paul? Uh, yeah, so Joe Kwan is, is probably the spark that set it all off. I, I was going to go with the petrol, which was three hours capital. So Kyle and, 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 and Susie, who, who then took the, you know, the public uh, years to um, leverage uh, Cascade and, and took it private into the, you know, into the C4 industry. And, and vaporized all of the, all those people's money and so those 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 guys there for me too clever by half and not quite smart enough the uh i haven't heard much from kyle online but sue Zhu, he's been like doing like a a yoga retreat or like a meditation retreat and he's been back on twitter lately and i read the comments in one of his recent twitter friends Twitter threads, he was talking about uh, effective altruism, you know, which is one of these like, I don't know, points of distinction for some of these young rich folks. And uh, the comments were just, he, he's getting no love. And I don't think he should be getting any love. Uh, everyone was piling into him, you know, basically telling him to go away. But, you know, he he's out there doing his thing. And uh, I think he's also trying to raise money again, uh, you know, with... Uh, reminiscence of Adam Newman raising money for his like uh, carbon credits on the blockchain fund uh, again. So uh, I'm definitely not a fan of 
of that dude. Steven? Uh, Duke Juan was definitely on the top of my list, but I, I'd like to throw one out that's probably a bit contentious, and uh, this is very much personal, uh, you, you know, representation, but I would say Ethereum, um, probably a pretty big loser from transitioning to proof of stake. And again, that's personal uh, view. And I, I think that they have really shot themselves in the foot long-term by transitioning to proof of stake, but uh, we'll see. Okay, I might counter that in a, in a minute or two. Can I just add that probably the biggest losers this year have been, you know, the average investor or, or participant in the crypto industry who kind of got played. You know, you know, I think none of us here on this call, you know, set out to do anything but help the, the, the wider global community. And that hasn't always been the case this year. And unfortunately, some people have paid the price for that. I think you nailed it, Paul. That was that was my first loser. Was everyone? Um, you know, it's been a it's been a terrible year in traditional markets. Everyone's already losing at the grocery store, or when they pay their rent, or when they pay their mortgage. They might have got tricked into a super low rate in a short term. But then, in terms of crypto, I see like you've got the people who are already curious and invested and, and building, uh, and they've probably taken a monetary hit, or if not had some outright theft in some of these collapses. But then on the other hand, the other type of person maybe hasn't yet needed crypto and hasn't yet gotten into it and hasn't yet thought about an alternative financial system. And now I feel like they're probably going to have a lot of reasons to stay away. And uh, so I think I think everyone this year has has lost a bit. I'm going to give I'm going to give one more specific a uh, specific loser. Uh, and this is either open source software itself or uh, specifically uh, this Tornado Cash developer. Uh, Brian and I talked about Tornado Cash on a previous pod. So Alexei Pertsev, uh, he's a developer of the crypto mixer Tornado Cash. He's been ordered to stay in jail now until February 20th which puts him at four months in jail without charge. And just last week, he was officially accused of money laundering. So now he's being held with charge again until February 20th will be the next uh, date. Uh, and, and basically, he's charged with contributing to the Tornado Cash protocol, which means that a couple of years ago, he wrote some code that allows people to improve their privacy on Ethereum. Uh, and then a few years later, some North Korean hackers decided to use the protocol um, and he's being held in the Netherlands. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. And so the Netherlands has decided that uh, this is unacceptable. Um, and now there's, an, there's another piece to this story as well. And of course, it's still unfolding, but uh, it's that Alexei is Russian. And so the Netherlands are saying he's a flight risk and that's why they've had to hold him. And so I think the losers here are young people like Alexi who maybe want to contribute to some open source software, uh, post a smart contract on GitHub, uh, they might think twice before doing this. And so I, I think that's bad. I think that's bad for tech, bad for software, bad for crypto uh, in, in general. Uh, let's 
let's flip it positive and do a round of winners, 2022 winners. Um, we'll start again with Brian. Any winners? Um, yeah, it's really hard to pick one, unfortunately. Um, I might have to, might have to say um, winners would be those projects who have survived the bear market um, and um, who are continuing to build world-class products that will uh, move us to Web3. Um, and I commend them for building through um, yeah, these trying times and uh, hope they push on next year. Uh, that was on my list. Uh, I think, um, if I look at it, and I'm not sure, I'm ter terrifically happy about it, but it looks like Binance and CZ have been a big, big winner this year. Um, just because of, you know, survival of the fittest and all of those sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, so I think they're a winner. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just going to give a, a specific example. Um, yeah, I was going to um, suggest Strike and, um, you know, what they're doing with the Lightning Network and facilitating cross-border transactions and transactions in places like El Salvador. And so, uh, very specific, but there are a lot of great infrastructure projects that are bringing the mass adoption over the next couple of years. And they do focus on things like uh, non-custodial offerings and uh, really leading the way for the next phase of adoption. Yeah, look, a layer twos in general, like, you know, notwithstanding your comments before about Ethereum, Stephen, like layer twos on, on Ethereum have gone absolutely gangbusters as well. I think that they're doing several times the transactions that the mainnet are doing now um, in, in Ethereum. And it's, you know, again, it's a good product market fit. They're doing something really well. Yeah, great pick there with Strike. Uh, I, I would agree with that. Um, great things with cross-border payments, great things with, uh, I think they even offer zero fees as a like promotional thing maybe, um, but fees on Lightning are low enough anyways. Um, so I'll, I'll take the, for my winner here, I'm going to take the other side of uh, Steven's bet. And I'm going to say that Ethereum was a winner for the year. And um, I'll say Ethereum as a whole, but specifically, I want to talk about software. Um, so in September, the main chain switched from proof of work to proof of stake, as Stephen mentioned. Uh, and so I think the winners here are the Ethereum core devs who actually managed to do this. You know, it's been a very long project, uh, as long as eight years in, the, in planning. Um, so over those past number of years, you know, they've developed a plan, created the test networks, uh, done the implementation. And then, you know, within one single block, they hot swapped the network. It's holding about $200 billion of value. It's still running as a decentralized computer. Uh, it's had zero downtime uh, during the swap. Uh, the next block came along 12 seconds later uh, and everyone was just kind of like, oh, it worked. Uh, and and then you know the the main character narrative of all these people like Toquan and SBF took over again. Um, so I don't have a take 
at this time on whether or not it's going to work out them switching to proof of stake. But my winner is these developers that have done this uh, and managed to swap the network. Um, I'll give a shout out to what Brian mentioned as well about projects that are still standing. If you look at some of the old school DeFi products like uh, Uniswap, Aave, MakerDAO, uh, you know, these have all performed as expected. The code has done their thing. And um, so they all managed to sort of weather this massive 2022 storm of liquidations. And I think, uh, I think going forward, um, at least in the short term, that's where we're going to be. And if you look at like yields on Aave, you know, sometimes it's like 0.4%. And, and I think that is, you know, a lot more realistic than yields topping 20% on, on UST. Uh, not, not just that I think it is, it absolutely is because we've seen what happens. And so I'll give a shout out to those as well. Uh, all right, folks, final topic. Let's uh, gaze into our crystal ball here. What are some trends that you're looking for into next year? Let's reverse order, go to Steven. Yeah, I mean, my theory is everyone who sees crypto as an end is, is in crypto now. And the next phase of adoption is uh, really people who see crypto more as a means and their end goal is connection, trade, uh, business, that kind of thing. And so this is where I see a, a major transition to the next phase of the internet. I don't think it's necessarily happening next year, but starting to happen where people start interacting a lot more uh, on a business level, entertainment level, and in a virtual world and use crypto as one tool to interact and facilitate those interactions. But I'd say maybe a little bit more specific to next year, AI, seeing uh, the use of AI and NFTs. I know this is kind of a, a dream of mine, but I, it does seem like this is becoming more and more relevant where, you know, back in the day, people had things like Tamagotchis. And now you'll have, rather than a Tamagotchi, your own personal AI assistant. Uh, and so I think we'll start seeing AI and blockchain merging quite a bit over the next uh, 18, 24 months. Have you been uh, playing with OpenAI's ChatGPT? A little bit, yeah. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, let's go to Paul. Uh, the reason for the smile is someone someone's did a, a little song about Easy Crypto what we're using the uh, ChatGPT today. It was really, really cool. Uh, and I had to look it up because I hadn't heard about it. So the, uh, I was a bit behind on that one. Um, look, looking into the near future, I think we're going to continue to see lots of talk and or interest in stable coins and, and potentially CBDCs. I think that's, that's a track that's going to continue on. Um, I see growing interest and in, I'm going to use a broad term of payments and or um, use, you know, kind of more everyday use of crypto rather than just a buy and hold speculative asset. I think that's a, a bridge that needs to be done, whether it's, you know, through old rails like credit card or, uh, you know, new, new payment technologies and that sort of stuff. Um, and then I do think the evolution of Web3 and identity is coming along. You know, there's sign in with ETH 
which is a, a new a new acronym that I've heard in the last few months. It's probably a lot older than that. I've really been paying attention to that sector, but that's kind of the that 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 that, that, that trend and course I think is a good one that the industry can can certainly riff on a little bit more. Uh, but it's got to address the UX challenges, you know. So again, you know, expecting a bunch of uh, of cryptographers to build great UX is not the not not you're not going to end up with good outcomes. Um, and so we've got to address that part of, of the journey as well. You're not you're not that far behind. Uh, it only launched like four days ago. The, okay. the chat GPT thing. But, okay, uh, cool. Good to know. <laughs> Yeah, those would all be great things uh, to see a lot more of. Brian, what do you have? Uh, for next year, I think I'm excited to see just from some of my clients, um, some early products for um, metaverses that are being built. Um, and I think, yeah, as Stephen said, you know, we're in a, a long journey towards um, you know, purely immersive digital worlds where, um, you know, we essentially evolve from us now who are digital natives to people who are probably digitally exclusive and they spend the majority of their waking life um, in digital worlds. And I'm excited to see some projects start to roll out their products from next year. Um, and then I think blockchain will be an important piece to that as the um, source of truth and the settlement layer for um, transactions and interactions in those worlds. Do you think we'll see like this idea, this concept of metaverse uh, as a overlap with blockchain continuing to play out? Or do you think it's sort of had its day? The, we kind of have to follow where the money's going. And there's walls and walls of venture capital money being invested in in the metaverses, um, and I, I I wouldn't bet against that momentum yet. Um, and personally, I would I would like to see that happen. Yeah, I mean it, it's the blockchain is just one tool, one technology, and but it's a critical one. It's like you know, can you have the internet without HTTPS? Well, yeah, but it's you know, it's going to make life challenging. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of other elements and technologies that need to go. But yeah, I, I don't think you can build a, a metaverse without a secure mechanism for things like property. I had that as one of my, one of my trends. I think we're going to see NFTs bounce. Um, we saw a massive bubble this year in NFTs and it has since burst. Um, but that bubble was basically fueled by, uh, PFPs profile pictures. And so I think we're going to see more expanded use cases. I would like to see more boring use cases, uh, things that we use for paper ID. I would like to see people just start putting stuff on a blockchain, see what sticks. Um, we saw a South Korean university issued diplomas on a blockchain. I work at a university, I would like all my students' credentials to be on a blockchain. You know, they can also get the paper and they can also have, we can still employ like a registrar to look up their name in a database. But I think that uh, I would like to see everything get pushed. And that, like Paul said, the volume in layer twos uh, is starting to enable this. Um, maybe we need to solve some of those UX problems. 
Uh, I'll, st I'll steal a trend from our last guest. I had James Bailey from Subquery on the show and I asked him this and he said interoperability uh, as a trend. And I think it's also going to be a requirement if we look at all the bridging problems we had this year, you know, people want to be able to go from chain to chain in a real like natural ecosystem. Everything is interconnected. Even if you're an island nation, you do have slight connections to the neighboring uh, neighboring ecosystems. And it, it seems like in crypto with these blockchains, uh, the ecosystem part of it is just basically building out everyone's own silo and uh, so I think we, we need to be able to go from, you know, Ethereum to Avalanche and have it be quick. Uh, Paul mentioned earlier about being nervous about bridges. I think I, I bridged from Ethereum to Avalanche once this year, you know, sending a thousand dollars. I was very nervous because I had to wait like seven hours for those tokens to be minted on Avalanche. And that's seven hours. I'll never get back. Right. Um, so. I, I'm going to put interoperability on my on my trends list, but also as a requirement for uh, blockchain expansion. Hey, I, I uh, just want to do a quick wrap up. Actually, uh, there's some people on this call who are incredibly passionate about New Zealand blockchain and crypto ecosystem, and dedicate a lot of their time and have done for a really long, long time. And I don't think they uh, get called out very often. So I just wanted to thank you guys for, for what you do for us in the community. Uh, and it's awesome to have a conversation where we don't always agree, um, you know, Ethereum, good, bad, whatever. Uh, but I think, um, but I think the thinking and the thought leadership and the dedication you guys bring is awesome. So I just want to call you out. It's been awesome to work with you a lot more closely this year. Cheers, Paul. Hopefully we'll hear more from you in the coming year. Any final words, Brian? Yeah, sick of that. Really great to call it all. And yeah, thanks, Paul, for your kind words. Um, I share those as well, like everyone here on this call and everyone in the blockchain New Zealand community works really hard and um, keen to continue to grow New Zealand Web3 together. Stephen? Yeah, well, it's always a pleasure chatting with, with you guys. And uh, crypto is really about that connection. You know, we say that blockchain is a trustless network, but really what it does is automates all the hard stuff where the, the robotic stuff so that we can be humans and engage and connect on a more personal level again. You know, although blockchain's digital, we're, it's helping us return to our roots of being able to connect with each other uh, without some mammoth entity in the middle facilitating the transaction, we can now engage and interact directly. And that's what crypto and blockchain is all about. So definitely uh, come out to these blockchain events because that is where we pass knowledge and get most of the knowledge uh, where, as Paul mentioned, we don't always agree, but uh, at the same time, we don't really know what the final answers are. and. Uh, the best way to get them is, is for us to collaborate and talk it out and uh, have a lot more of these. Yeah, very well said. All right, so Paul Quickenden, Brian Ventura, Stephen McCaskill, thanks for uh, doing a year in review. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, you. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. 
probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.